You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history, and for the past two years now, this podcast, that is right, this is technically the second anniversary episode of Art of History, which I confess I did not even realize until I sat down to film and I said, huh, I wonder if we are getting close to two years. I can confirm the first episode of Art of History was posted on August 27th, 2021, which means that this week, you know, we work on a weekly schedule in the podcast world. This week is our second anniversary, so I'm really proud of myself for taking this project so far and growing the show into what it is. And thank you, listener, whether this is your first time tuning in or if you've been here since that first episode, which, if you haven't listened to it, I think still holds up pretty well. It's about a very scandalous portrait of Queen Victoria. If you are new to the show, the premise here is usually pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. But today, we're going to do things a bit differently. No, this was not intended as a second anniversary celebration episode, but it's working that way. It's it's all going in our favor here. Because today I am so, so pleased to bring you our first ever interview on Art of History. We are talking to Kathleen B. Jones today, who is the former head of the Women's Studies Department at San Diego State University. After teaching there for over two decades, she now is focusing on writing. She is the author of numerous academic works, including Compassionate Authority, Democracy, and the Representation of Women, and some creative nonfiction, such as Diving for Pearls, A Thinking Journey with Hannah Arndt. But it is her new book and her first ever novel called Cities of Women that we are here to discuss today. It is out in just about a week on September 5th, 2023. And it follows the life of medieval proto-feminist Christine de Pizan, who is an icon in both the history of literature and art history. More on that later. It is also a story that touches on issues of feminism, both in history and in scholarship. The book has a really unique dual narrative structure. Um, The narrative is separated into two sections, several centuries apart, and it examines the lives of women who dare to challenge the social norms of their days, risking their reputations and livelihoods for the sake of their passions. In the 21st century, we meet Verity Fraser, a disillusioned history professor who sets out to prove that the artist responsible for the illuminated artwork in Christine de Pizan's medieval manuscripts was a remarkable woman named Anastasia. As Anastasia's story unfolds against the exquisitely rendered medieval backdrop of moral disaster, political intrigue, and extraordinary creativity, Verity finds her own career on the brink of collapse by her efforts to uncover evidence of the lost artist's existence. 
This work was inspired by over a decade of Kathleen Jones' research into the life of Christine de Pizan herself. So Kathleen, welcome to the show. And I want to start with Christine. Let's get acquainted with her. She is notable for being the first professional woman writer in Europe, the first woman to support herself through writing. Is that correct? Yes, and that's correct. Uh, but it, besides the fact that she supported herself with her writing, she herself was a really noted uh, literary figure in the late medieval France. So uh, she was very influential besides the fact that it, it helped her have an income. She was actually born in Venice because her father was an astrologer who had been working in Venice at the time of her birth in either 1364 or 1365, depending upon which source you consult. Uh, and she, they moved to Paris uh, when she was a very young girl uh, because her father had been invited to become astrologer in the court of Charles V, who was the reigning king at the time. And she lived between the years 1365 until her death in approximately uh, 1430 and became very, very prominent in writing both poetry and prose and had um, influence at the court, not only of Charles the uh, V, the uh, but more more importantly, uh, Charles VI, who was known as the Mad King. Um, and his wife, Isabel of uh, Bavaria, was regent to the king. And Christine was commissioned to do works for uh, her, uh, as well as a lot of other nobles. But before she received those commissions, she participated in a lot of major uh, poetry festivals that were held at the court and also involved herself in some of the major controversies about women at the time. And mm -hmm. that's where she really established her uh, reputation on both sides, people who were supporters of what she said in defense of women and those who attacked her for actually defending women. So she was quite known for being the first woman to actually, in the French vernacular, defend women against the things that, that had been said against them. So what was the landscape like at this time? Because we're talking about the Middle Ages. We, we might have an idea of what things were like for women, what women were facing in society. But can you just give us a little bit about what specifically she was reacting to? Well, she was reacting as a, she was a very educated woman because her father had, against her mother's objections, supported the education of, uh, of the daughter. I will interject here just to add kind of something I found interesting was it was actually the death of Christine's father and her husband um, who passed away suddenly when she was just 25 years old. Those deaths of the men in her life are what both enabled her and kind of forced her to make a living writing and supporting herself, not only herself, actually, but also her mother and her own children. So she turned to writing full time, not just as a creative passion, but as something that was going to enable her to make a living. And I don't know, I find a bit of uh, poetry in the fact that it was both because her father instilled this love of scholarly pursuits in her and because of his passing that she both needed and and was able to do this. She went on to become the first person in France to earn a living as a professional author as a result. 
she had access to the library of Charles V, which was one of the most amazing libraries in Europe at the time. He'd been known for collecting major works from the East and the West in uh, translation from different languages in Latin and also in the French vernacular. And having had access to those works, as well as being educated by her father, she was unusual in that regard. You know, So she was in many ways privileged. However, it's important to say that in medieval times, unlike what we think about women's status, women actually participated in a lot of professional uh, and other kinds of occupations. They ran uh, breweries, they were artists. Uh, what they didn't have equal access to was education in many cases. And that was one of the key things that Christine defended in her works was women's education. Uh, as, uh, as she had had uh, that privilege, she wished that other women would have the kind of education uh, that she'd been exposed to. And she says this specifically in the Book of the City of Ladies. So the landscape for women is quite complicated in the medieval times and not as dreary as many people expect, <laughs> although, of course, medieval times were pretty dreary. The plague was rampant across Europe. It destroyed about Oh, a third to a half of the population. And in fact, in her lifetime, the plague went through uh, France several times and took the lives of several people who were close to her. Partially because of the turmoil that's happening around her, you know, in this medieval French era, you have the plague, you have a rather unstable crown at the time. Christine is recording things that are happening around her and her views on them. But she's also writing on a number of different topics. Today, we might call her an essayist of sorts. She wrote on religious and political theory, as well as current events, kind of. Um, she even wrote on military tactics at one point. But she also crossed genres. She wrote in poetry as well as prose. And you mentioned her, I think, most famous work, the book of the city's city of ladies. Um, in your new novel, you call that her celebration mm -hmm. of women's power. How is she commenting on gender and society in that work? The book starts out with Christine describing herself in her study, uh, situated alone, reading a variety of books. And she takes a book off the shelf uh, for whatever reason. She says it sort of lands in her lap and she opens it. And in it, she starts to read all of these horrible detractions against women. Women are weak. Women um, don't have uh, a, you know, adequate intellect. Women are immoral. Women are seductresses. And she becomes really depressed. She thinks, oh my God, I, uh, why was I even born a woman? It's so horrible the situation. And, and uh, I, I think about myself and really I've been educated and uh, I, it doesn't make sense that this must be what women are about. Well, I, I'm so depressed. I'm, I guess I have to accept what I'm reading. And she falls into a state of despair. And while she's in that state of despair, three goddesses appear to her or three deities, let's say. Uh, the uh, It's really in some ways a ghost story because she imagines these three amazing ladies who appear before her, uh, reason, rectitude, and justice. And they set about putting her to right. 
They say, and in fact, earlier in the book, Christine says, you know, I, I thought to myself, I'm not really like what these writers are saying women are like. And I talked to a lot of other women, both highborn and of across all classes, and they don't think that's what they're like. But on the other hand, this is what men are writing about women. So these three people appear, these three women appear, uh, Lady Reason, Lady Rectitude, and Lady Justice. And they say, look, all of those things are wrong. They've been written by men, and you can't believe what you read in those books. If women had written them, a different story would have been told. And we want you to build a city of women that will, actually city of ladies, <laughs> it's very specifically said that in the book, because we want you to erect a fortress that will protect women from these horrible things that are said against them. And in this city of ladies, virtuous women of all classes will live and will forevermore be protected against these horrible things. And one detail I really love about the book of the City of Ladies, obviously, Christina Pizan, she's not physically picking up bricks and building a city here. The city is an allegory. It's not a real city. But in writing this allegory, Christine is actually building a city of ladies with the book itself. So the book becomes a defense of women in the same way that the allegorical city in the manuscript does. And Christine herself is building both as a character in the book and as the author of the book or of the manuscript, I should say. Um, I just, it's like a little bit of inception there. And I, I love that. So she really sets about in, in prose to correct the mistakes that have been said about women all throughout history. And these three goddesses or ladies or apparitions, however you want to describe them, help her correct the record. And instead of all the awful things that are said about women, a parade of virtuous women of all sorts are made to appear in the book and, uh, and correct the errors of the past. And that parade of women, that includes some pretty notable figures from history. Is that correct? It does. Uh, major figures from uh, all sorts of locations, including some characters we wouldn't think would be seen as positive, like Medea. But what's really interesting is she's she's rewriting history in this book and making appear women who have had accomplishments in just about every field, from philosophy to science to the arts. Uh, and in fact, that's the it, what occurs in the book when she writes about artists is the name of one of the characters in my novel, Anastasia. Because after Christine listens to all of these women uh, and rethinks their role in, in making the world a much more virtuous place, according to Christine, uh, she remembers, oh, yes, there was an artist I came across named Anastasia. She was one of the most accomplished in all of Paris. No one could surpass her paintings and illuminations that she did in these books. So based on that, I got the clue to the possibility of writing a novel about the possible relationship between Christine and this character, this artist, Anastasia. Well, and that brings us to an interesting kind of point, because we're talking about Christine de Pizan, who was a writer on an art history podcast. So why, where's that connection come in? Because so far we've just mentioned her, her writings. Right. Well, what's interesting is, is what medieval books were. They're not like 
the modern, even physical books that we have today. Medieval books, especially the more elaborate ones, were what I like to call uh, latter-day uh, graphic novels in the sense in which they were often richly illuminated with uh, art around the borders and miniatures, portraits of some of the characters whose activities are described, whether secular or religious, in the books. So they are themselves artworks. And they were collaborative projects. A scribe would take an author's work and uh, put quill to parchment and write these texts and leave spaces in them for where painters would be asked to create uh, scenes, really, that might depict the things about which the texts were uh, were written. And uh, so it's really important to think about a medieval book as much more than just a bunch of words on a page or much more than just a textual story because the story was often carried on in the artwork itself. And around the borders of the pages, you would see all kinds of not only flowers and other uh, odd monsters and snakes and things coming out. Uh, so they're really artworks as well as written narratives. And when it comes to manuscripts today containing Christine's works, there are several extant copies around uh, in various library collections, whether in Paris or in Belgium or in uh, in London. So there are a number of her actual physical books that uh, that are uh, that are extant, uh, held in various collections. Most of which. Are, are available for only um, digital viewing. They've been many of them have been digitized. Only the most uh, you know famous researchers, they're called paleographers, who actually need to see the physical book will be given access to it. Most of us, like myself, have to be content with looking at the <laughs> at the digitized man, uh, manuscripts of the uh, Book of the City of Ladies. Now, listeners, one thing that I love about Christine de Pizan is that she had full creative control, you might say, over the bulk of her works when they went to print. A lot of them were produced entirely under her direction. She specified how they would be laid out and bound together and illuminated, illustrated, all of it. That's a lot more than most authors even today in 2023 can say. And the most famous of the manuscripts produced under Christine's direction, what the British Library calls the largest and most splendid of her works, is known as the Queen's Book or the Queen's Manuscript. The Queen's Book is a compilation of, it's a, an enormous compilation of Christine's writings that were probably pulled together between 1410 and 1414. And uh, that book belongs now in, uh, Har is known as Harley 4431, and it's in the British Library. And it's one of the most famous and rarest of books in the British Library. And what's interesting about the Queen's Book, and the reason why it was called the Queen's Book, was because Christine gave it to Queen Queen Isabeau of Bavaria, who, as I mentioned before, was regent. Uh, she was queen to Charles VI of France, who was frequently incapable of ruling at the time because he was subject to, it's hard to say what, some kind of madness, whether it was schizophrenia or what, we're not really sure. And so his, uh, he, his regency was left in the care of uh, either Louis, Louis or Philip. Philip of Burgundy. And as a consequence, the queen, who could not rule at the time mm -hmm. because of the Salic law, uh, was really someone whose authority 
to say something of significance Christine wanted to establish. So the book of the City of Ladies in the Queen's book is placed at the very, very center of that huge compilation of Christine's writing. And many scholars will interpret that as an indication of, of, of Christine establishing the queen's authority, not to rule as a king, mm. but to have power in her own uh, queenly right as a regent. And also while she's establishing the queen's authority, She's establishing her own authority as a writer to say these things of political significance. So it's a kind of doubly of authorizing kind of, of manuscript filled with some of the most elaborate paintings and drawings. And one of the most uh, interesting is the one where at the very, very beginning of the Queen's book, you see a portrait of Christine herself giving the book to the Queen. It's just an amazing, amazing uh, picture uh, painted in quite elaborate uh, illuminations with gold and all kinds of fleur-de-lis filigrees around the, uh, uh, the portrait. We are going to take a brief sponsor break, but when we return in typical art of history fashion, we will take a bit of a closer look at those illuminations within the Queen's book. So don't go anywhere. It's coming up right after this. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we are back. And before we dive back into our interview with author Kathleen Jones, I do want to take a closer look at two of the illuminations within the manuscript known as the Queen's Book. As you probably picked up from the conversation, the Book of the City of Ladies in particular features Christine as a central character, and that is the same when it comes to the illuminations within the Queen's manuscript. A number of the pictures, the portraits that accompany her, her own writings show the author herself. Since she often did play that role in directing her printers how to lay out the manuscripts and in directing the artists on how to portray her, we can conclude that these portraits, they tell us a lot about how Christine wanted to be represented and most importantly, about what messages she wanted to convey to the reader. They are clearly an extension of the ideas that she's putting forth in her writing. A few of these images portray Christine in the middle of writing, which is just, I love it so much. Probably the most famous of them is known as Christine de Pizan in her study. I remember looking at this um, this illumination in, I think it was my Women in Art course in college. Um, in this picture, she wears a simple blue dress. It's deceivingly simple, I will say. More on that in a moment. And she sits in front of a writing table. She is holding a pen as she is like actively in the middle of writing in a book. 
Her figure is framed by a rounded arch here, which almost to me looks like it could be one of those like cutaway castle cross sections <laughs> that are so popular in children's picture books. While Christine herself did have a study quite like this one with a desk and writing equipment like we see here, this portrait is probably not an exact representation of that space, but it's more meant to give us a general idea of her setup and what it would have looked like. The point here is that she is in the middle of actually writing. But nevertheless, this would have been an important interior space for Christine. It's where she would have composed her own works, as well as the place where she would have kept up to date with the works of other contemporary writers of her time. And of course, she would have pored over the literature of authors who came before her in this space as well. Next to Christine in the study is a small white dog who is seated at the hem of her skirt next to her chair. That's a detail that I love. These white dogs, they're a few places in the manuscript, um, probably courtly pets, things like that. And despite the remarkable nature of this portrait, I do want to note really quickly that Christine is not the first woman to be depicted in the act of writing, um, or even as like a female author in general. Images of Hildegard von Bingen, who is a subject I would love to cover on the podcast, just probably down the road a little bit. Those images of her recording her mystical visions predate Christine by a little over three centuries. There is also at least one depiction um, from a picture scroll dating from 13th century Japan, which shows Murasaki Shikibu reading to and instructing the Empress Shoshi. Murasaki Shikibu, if you did not know, she was a female poet and writer, as well as a lady-in-waiting, and she penned what many contend is the world's first ever novel, called The Tale of Genji, around the year 1000. So Christine, although she is not the first woman to be depicted in the pursuit of writing and, and taking in literature, she is among good company. In the image of her in her study, her hair is kind of tucked back and it's covered with this quintessentially medieval, it's like a double horned headdress um, that is topped by a white veil. That headdress has been identified as a type that originated in Burgundy and in France, um, and it was worn by noble women of Christine's time. So she's giving us some insight into her social standing as well as her profession as a writer with her clothing here. The dress, as I said, it is simple, but it's elegantly cut and it is made from very expensive blue cloth. Just to render that dress on paper would have been costly in and of itself. The intensely saturated blue tone of the dress is created using ultramarine, which comes from a semi-precious stone called lapis lazuli. This is mined in Afghanistan. At the time, it was extraordinarily expensive and had to be imported into Europe. Now, throughout the Queen's manuscript, Christine wears this same blue dress. Its kind of sumptuousness and its luxury is a clear tactic to hammer home her prosperity and, as Kathy mentioned, her authority. The consistent dress and headdress also make it easy for us as the reader to pick Christine out whenever she appears in Illuminations throughout the Queen's book. The very first image of the manuscript, which um, Kathy mentioned, shows her kneeling before the queen and presenting the book to her. Queen Isabeau sits on a kind of chaise lounge almost. Um, she's within her royal chamber and she's surrounded by her ladies in waiting. The queen and her ladies wear much more elaborate clothes than Christine and their headdresses are, you know, more intricate and complicated. But Christine doesn't look shabby by comparison at all. 
Her dress is still luxurious enough to place Christine on a level that would be consistent with her being able to get inside that room and present her manuscript to Queen Isabeau. We are dealing with a little bit of manuception, you could say, um, because the book that Christine is offering to the queen within the image is supposed to represent the very manuscript that is containing the image. It's the queen's book. This portrait is called a presentation image. That's a type of image within art history. Usually these showed male authors presenting their books to kings. Christine is kind of taking that um, archetype and using that established convention as a clever way to help her, again, establish her own authority and her own position as a legitimate professional author. So, all in all, the artistic additions to Christine's manuscripts, they serve to highlight her status and her expertise in this literary profession, which we just, we love. We love to see it. All right, that's enough chitter chatter out of me. I will return you now to our conversation with Kathy Jones um, for a bit more on the physical process of creating these manuscripts. And then we will get a little bit more into where she takes us in her own novel. Just in the prologue of your book, you you give readers a very rich kind of depiction description of the artistic process created creating these illuminations. Can you tell us a little bit in your own words about what the physical process of creating one of these manuscripts would have been like? Because we are pre-printing press here. This is all exactly by hand. Exactly. And in fact, there's a line in the novel which I'd like to begin with, which is mm. a book begins as flesh. A book begins as flesh because parchment was made, uh, otherwise often called vellum, was made from the skin of animals. And it was a very long process of treating the skin and stretching it to the point where you could actually use it as a writing surface. Mm -hmm. So it begins with the flesh of an animal that's been treated in a certain way and dried and stretched until it's almost translucent. And that is then cut in certain ways and uh, after it's been dried and becomes the writing surface for the scribe. And these piles of parchment folded in a certain way would be taken to uh, the workshop of the scribe. And on that surface, after the scribe drew lines to direct the text in a particular way, uh, she or he there were actually women scribes at the time, would transfer the text that the author had wanted to be placed there. Uh, leaving boxes often, if it was an illuminated, decorated manuscript, where an artist would later put the pictures. In the case of Christine, what's really interesting about her and why I think it's plausible to say that she worked with a lot of women uh, artisans and artists and craftspeople, was that she oversaw the production of all her books. She actually gave instructions, as far as we can tell, to the artists about what she wanted to see, the illuminations in her books. So, And it's likely, given the nature of medieval crafts at the time, uh, that she would have worked in workshops where women were the ones who were the uh, the, the artists or crafts mm. crafts or scribes, mm. um, and many people say the same thing. And we know that, in fact, in medieval France, there's a wonderful map that you can look at that's been created by uh, geo geographic information systems where they've mapped 
the uh, images of medieval Paris onto the old parts of the city and on the places where houses would have been located near Idelas, on Ile de la Cité, near Notre Dame, which is where a lot of the, uh, the uh, artists and craftspeople were located. Mm. They've named what, from records that are extant, what artists lived where. And you can see that some of them were women, women illuminators, women scribes, women parchment makers, because because many of these people were descended in families where the book trades had been in that family for quite a long, long time. Hmm. So uh, Christine's collaboration with other Pro, pro, probably many other women artists and craft people would have been supported by a lot of documentary uh, and uh, other kinds of records, including, as I mentioned, her naming Anastasia in mm. the City of, uh, uh, of Ladies as one of the artists whose work she, she knew. Now, whether Anastasia was a real figure, mm. a historical figure, or one of the other characters that Christine invents in her stories to make a point, we don't know. But that for a fiction writer is great because <laughs> I get to invent and <laughs> imagine the life Definitely. of this person. Because your novel, it flashes back and forth between the present to the past, to the 14th, 15th century, um, to kind of recreate this this relationship, as you imagine it, between Christine and Anastasia, um, who has been employed to illuminate her manuscripts. Do you think it's more likely or do you not want to say that she was uh, an imagined character, kind of an amalgamation maybe of all these female artisans? Or do you think she was a real person? I like to think that she was a real person, but it's really hard to say. At the same time, I don't want to give up the fact that she was an amalgamation because mm. in a way, Christine's honoring all of the women who have been made invisible or who mm. have been derogated in history uh, by by naming her Anastasia. And by the way, the, the name Anastasia means uh, resurrection. Mm. So it, it has a run interesting connotation because it's kind of a bringing back to life women who've been, you know, sort of hidden from, from history. So I'm, I'm happy either way, whether she was, I like to think that she was a real person, but if she wasn't, uh, it was great for me to imagine her into sure. existence and to give her a kind of life that I think uh, she might've had. Sure. And it is kind of, it's poetic almost to think, you know, she, Christine would have been creating this archetype of a woman to, to stand in in her story. Yeah. We've been throwing around the terms like artisans, tradespeople, but also we've been referring to these illuminated manuscripts as a work of art. And that's something, that distinction there between craft and like the fine arts, that's something that is kind of ever present when we talk about female artists, because historically women have been more active in like what we consider the trades, the crafts, because of their their lack of access to education. Do you see this whole process of of creating these these books that are works of art? Do you see that falling into that, you know, that realm of discussion at all? You know, the distinction is is highly controversial between craft, yes. especially because it implies lesser. And in fact, one of the scenes in my novel um, I, I, that, that this whole discussion calls to mind is when Anastasia, the medieval artist, is being shown around Paris by a man who's a bookseller who, who sort of takes her under his wing. And she goes to a uh, the, the atelier, the, the studio, of uh, of a woman bookbinder 
And it, the, you know, we often think of a bookbinder as definitely a craft person because, well, they're just compiling and sewing and gluing, you know, the the folios, the 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 pieces of parchment together to form a book. But what Anastasia realizes when she sees this woman working is two things. First of all, it's an incredible art to be able to bind a book. We don't really appreciate it as much these days because, you know, we don't know what goes into creating something like this. But if you actually, especially in a hardback book, if you look at the spine of a book, you'll see the remnants of, uh, of what is a medieval uh, work in the way in which it was sewn together and then put into the boards that held the pieces together and finally wrapped sometimes in leather, sometimes in silk, and it might've been decorated on the front. So I really think when you pull it all together, that since every piece depends upon the other, from the parchment maker all the way to the book binder, that the work of art is such a collaborative process. It's almost a, 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 a disservice to lessen any one of the elements to the way we use the word craft is to sort of almost derogate when in fact uh, it, it's it's an amazing work of art that required the handy work and it literally was work by hand of every single person who went whose whose efforts went into the creation of that amazing work of art what do you think the significance would be then if for example, we were able to prove that these were female artists working on, like, why does, why does that matter? For the very reason that Christine writes the, the book of the City of Ladies, because, you know, to honor women's contributions to the shaping of the world, of culture, of society, uh, of the work that women do, is, is really a very, remains a very important thing, even though I think in the years since, obviously, Christine lived, uh, you know, many women's ac contributions have been acknowledged, but we're constantly up against the same uh, obstacle, I think, of lack of recognition for what many different people have contributed to history. And this is only just one element of uh, a kind of setting the record straight. Uh, and it becomes really important because some we refer in French to the maître, the maître de cité de dame, you know, the master. In French, it means literally master. And because the language is so gendered, it's not an accident that mm -hmm. that the sort of assumption is that many of the masters were men. Well, actually, many of them were women too. And I think it's really important that that mm -hmm. record be uh, be set right as Christine tried to do how many hundreds of years earlier with her, her writing. Yeah. And that's something I think, is it fair to say that you share with the protagonist of your novel, who is kind of doing exactly what we're sitting here talking about, trying to reinsert these, these women into the historical record. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, you know, she, she is definitely, she would like to prove that, but it almost doesn't matter at that point because what's happened is she's been transformed by the process, the modern protagonist. Mm. And uh, she's sort of, her life has been changed. She's been changed by, you know, recognizing that there's work to be done, uh, regardless of whether or not um, her efforts proved to the scholars in the room that what she tries to suggest is 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 true. 
Sure. And I think that's something that uh, any woman who's conducted this type of research can probably relate to. <laughs> um, I love this little, there's like a little excerpt here um, that says your book cities of women evokes the spare joys and monumental pitfalls facing medieval women artists and a contemporary woman who becomes obsessed with medieval books. So I love the the parallels there between the women actually creating these objects, you know, four or 500 600 years ago um and then the woman in the present day who needs to rewrite them back into the narrative back into the historical record um so are you personally at all familiar with those uh, joys and pitfalls at all well, it's funny because one of the things that immediately comes to mind is the women's studies department we would get, we would get phone calls from people saying oh you're the women's studies department can you please tell me uh how to prepare you know strawberry shortcake or something silly along oh, those lines no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so you know constantly up against the discussion of well if it's women's studies well you know we need a men's studies department and so on and so so forth. I mean, those were in the old days, say the early 1970s. But, uh, you know, the question of of uh, recognizing the contributions of so many people who've been hidden from history, I think, is an ongoing theme and one in which we're, you know, we're still uh, involved uh, with, uh, whether it's uh, recognizing who you decide you want to be identified as uh, and saying no matter what you are, your contributions are, you know, are recognized. And I think that's really part of what's going on in in Christine's book, and it's certainly, uh, you know, obstacles that, that women and many people face today of se being seen as the persons mm -hmm. that they want to be defined as, uh, not just individually, but in terms of, uh, of a, a cultural legacy and a, and, a, and a role in society that demands, you know, equal recognition for uh, contributions being made to, to the development of whatever we call um, culture. In terms of the obstacles that the artists at Christine time face. Certainly, Christine herself was accused of not writing her own books because they were so influential. Mm. People said, oh, there were other men who really wrote those and she just passed them off as her own. Uh, it's just... We still hear that today. Yeah, exactly. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> you have taken this kind of academic consideration, something that women in academia are very familiar mm -hmm. with, um, but you've now it into this narrative, this novel. Um, anything you'd like to share about kind of making that transition? Was it was it something you always wanted to do? Turn to fiction writing? Well, for a long time, I, I guess uh, academic writing, scholarly writing, is is of course very very valuable and important, but it's also in many ways constraining to the imagination. And I think it's gotten increasingly so. If you take a look at the sort of formula of how you would have to write an academic essay in order for it to be published, a lot of people I talk to, not just women, uh, say, you know, I really wish I could be freer in my prose, but I have to conform to this particular standard in order mm. for, for it to be published. And it's also true of publishing academic or scholarly treatises. Very, very valuable uh, but the language it has to be in a particular sort of style of writing. And, you know, mm. autobiographical writing in scholarly works began to make itself known several decades ago. And uh, initially in, I'd say, the fields of anthropology, uh, where where people would talk about their own experiences and 
blend that into the narrative. Uh, whether I always wanted to be a writer of fiction, I can't say that that had been my aspiration. But once I started to write fiction, I realized that uh, it, it excited me because of what I was able to do in language that I couldn't do in scholarly kinds of, uh, of writing. Mm. I had the advantage of having known how to do research as a scholar uh, when I was writing the novel, but it also could be a disadvantage because you sort of fall down the research rabbit hole and have to figure out how to get yourself out of it and get back to writing the fiction. You know, you, you, sort, you sort of follow a chain of events and you become fascinated with what you discover in your research and you say, well, wait a second, <laughs> you know, I'm writing a novel. What's really useful here to the novel, to the story, to the mm. character? And mm. a lot of what I might discover in the research, I have to sort of set aside in order to do the, the creative writing. So we did mention your your novel flashes back from the present to the past, and it switches back and forth a few times. Why did you land on that as a structure for, for telling this story? Well, initially, I did think I was going to just write a novel about either Christine de Pizan uh, or her times. And I realized that I did not want to make Christine the protagonist. I wanted to have a secondary character as actually the protagonist. And that's where Anastasia comes into the story. But I didn't want to just write about medieval times because so many of the issues that women were confronting then uh, actually still resonated in the present. That was one reason I, w I wanted to blend the modern with the medieval. But more than that, I think the novel is also about time itself, uh, about how things that are in the past uh, you know, sort of find their way into the present, whether we in our 21st century experience something uh, like the plague in the form of COVID, or whether we, you know, we see the kinds of political and uh, economic corruption that was extant in the medieval period. It's not that they're the same thing. It's just that, that, that these issues about how we experience uh, events and it, in the past mm. sort of reverberate in in the present and remind us that um, that time is uh, is more I'd say cyclical than it is linear and when you confront a medieval manuscript in a sense you're you're not just seeing something that was in the past it almost comes to you in the present, comes through to the present. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was sort of experimenting with that dual timeline of the way that, uh, I, I guess it's Faulkner who said, you know, time, the, the past is never over. It's not even past. <laughs> so, you know, those kinds of things were working in my head. And, um, and I wanted to explore the way, the ways that a, a, a modern person would be interested in the past not just as a, a sort of artifact, but as something that was that was vibrant and alive and could be seen as beautiful now. Definitely. And the, the subject matter, the, the characters you've chosen kind of lend themselves very well to that. So it's I think it's great. Even Christine de Pizan, she in her book of the City of Ladies is kind of foreshadowing where feminist art would end up in you know something like judy chicago with the dinner party yeah who then goes exactly ahead and, and sets a place for christine so it's like we're always yes. kind of repeating all <laughs> over the place i love it yeah there's been so much of a 
you know, over the over the time since Christine de Pizan has been sort of rediscovered, shall we say, mm-hmm. since from around the 1970s on, I, I, I would say, you know, we bring new things to these older works and see things differently. We see them through our lens. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it's not just looking at the past and imagining how the past might, you know, people in medieval period might have seen themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, you never really understand that fully, but they certainly present themselves to us in, in, in different ways now and continue to, you know, we keep going back to those different texts and reading them differently. For instance, when Christine says in one of her writings, uh, not only that she wishes that she were born a man, but that she had been reborn a man. Mm. She sort of reclaims that in order to assert herself, uh, you know, in, in, in the world. Well, I'm excited to see where we go from here. And I'm excited to get my hands on a copy of your book, um, which is out September 5th. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, but Kathleen, thank you so much for sitting down with me. You're actually my first official podcast interview. I've done in-person ones, but not not digitally yet. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Listeners, if you couldn't tell, this interview was like the perfect intersection of a bunch of different personal interests for me. We had women in the arts, we had medieval art and literature. <laughs> we had feminism in academia. It was, this was wonderful. Be sure to hit up your local bookstore on September 5th to grab yourself a copy of Kathy's new book, Cities of Women. It will be available wherever books are sold. I will have a link to it on the Instagram for the podcast as well. And really quickly, just to wrap up, you know, the life of Christine de Pizan here because we kind of deviated and went right into like the craft that she was involved in. Um, Later in life, Christine entered a convent where she stayed until her death in 13, sorry, 1431. One of her last works, interestingly enough, was a poem lauding the life of Joan of Arc. This was likely written before Joan was burned at the stake for, you know, she was accused of heresy, but we all know that that's kind of a trumped up charge if you've listened to our Joan of Arc episode on art of history. Um, So I just found that that fact really interesting. One of the last things she ever wrote was literally a defense of a woman. This is an enjoyable rabbit hole. If you'd like to learn more about Christine, I encourage you to do so. You can start at the British Library on their website. They have some resources. Um, But that's going to be it for me today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you did, feel free to let me know over email. You can email me at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. You can also shoot me a DM on the Instagram where I will have some supplemental images as always for this episode. The Instagram is artofhistorypodcast. If you did enjoy this episode, I would be so grateful if you would give the show a five-star rating, a review, tell a friend about the podcast, tell your aunt about the podcast, um, if she is a feminist, like my great aunt who listens to the show is. Hi, Aunt Peg. Um, Just spread the word. It really does help me make this show even better for you the more people we get on board. So... And once again, thank you so much for two years of tuning in and listening to me just ramble about lessons we can learn about history through the arts. It's it's really one of my favorite things that I get to sit down and do, and I can't wait to keep building this show alongside you guys. So that's going to be all for me today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.